0: Benjamin Netanyahu is simply known as having defied the laws of political gravity for a long time. He has been Israel's longest-serving prime minister, eclipsing the longevity of giants like David Ben-Gurion and Menachem Begin. It has never been easy in such a highly charged political environment of Israel. Indeed, Israeli politics is not for the faint-hearted. Netanyahu has always been called the magician for his ability to extricate himself from difficult political crises. Yet now, he heads a government that is his biggest challenge ever. In order to survive, and perhaps to keep out of jail due to a corruption trial, he has crafted a nearly impossible coalition. His critics charge that the new coalition imperils the very idea of Israel as a liberal democracy and sets Israel on a trajectory to be Hungary or Poland. Yet supporters believe the magician has not lost his power. They insist he will successfully navigate crises as he has in the past. Yet this faith relies on the self-restraint of a leader who seems to have thrown out the successful playbook of a center-right politician, which has greatly helped him over the decades in favor of a hard-right approach is the biggest challenge restraining the very forces he has unleashed. Hello and welcome to Decision Points. I'm David Makovsky, Ziegler Distinguished Fellow at the Washington Institute for Near East Policy. I'm excited to go on this journey with you. In nearly 75 years of existence, the Likud party and its predecessor, the Heirut party, has altogether had only four, yes four, leaders. Menachem Begin, Yitzhak Shamir, Ariel Sharon, and Benjamin Netanyahu. Netanyahu has served longer as prime minister than any of them. His first stint began in 1996, 27 years ago. He served consecutively from 2009 to 2021 for a total of 15 years. In November 2022, his coalition won power, edging out opponents who made fateful tactical errors which could have tied the contest. The result, Netanyahu returned after a 17-month hiatus in the political opposition. It's hard to succinctly define his winning formula as Premier. He oversaw much of Israel's successes of private sector high-tech and public infrastructure, yet those moves have been embraced by all Israeli leaders of all stripes. It should be noted that That according to the World Bank, Israel's per capita GDP has surpassed Britain, France, and Japan, and has even edged out Germany in 2021. Another signature approach of Netanyahu is to talk tough against Israel's enemies, but being risk averse in committing Israeli ground troops.
1: And you remember that Iran nuclear deal? Remember that? President Trump decided to leave this bad deal, and he did the greatest thing for the security of the world and for the security of Israel.
0: On top of this, he has cultivated an image as a brass knuckles politician who has outmaneuvered all of his rivals. When it comes to elections, he's been like a laser beam in ensuring that no right wing votes would be lost, even if that meant forcing together a hard-right party which wants to change the very character of the Israeli state. Netanyahu has crafted an underdog persona that has resonated with the Orthodox and Sephardic communities, now known as Mizrahim, saying that he will fight for them against liberal elites. Indeed, he's a person of contradictions. He still insists that he's not the establishment, even as he serves as Israel's longest prime minister. He says he is fighting the elites, yet Netanyahu went to go and get an MBA from MIT after joining Israel's elite commando, Sayeret Matkal Unit. He cites the death of his brother Yoni in 1976 at a famed rescue of hostages at Entebbe, giving him the ambition to be the guardian of Israel, the Shomer Yisrael, to prevent further attacks against the Jewish state. He railed against the Oslo Accords with the Palestinians in the mid-90s, but then he took it to the next level with the Hebron Accords and the Y River Accords. He's a very skilled orator, and he's very smooth when it comes to presentations. Netanyahu has positioned himself as a skilled diplomat, most notably signing the Abram Accords with Bahrain, Morocco, and Sudan, the most significant step in Arab-Israel relations in decades. Whether he led the move or... With the UAE, the crown jewel of the Abraham Accords is subject to debate, as Netanyahu was focused at the time on something else, the Trump peace plan dealing with the Palestinians. Yet these successes come alongside controversial measures. First, his relations with Jordan's King Abdullah is very strained. Moreover, he has won acclaim claim for sounding the alarm about the destabilizing Iranian nuclear program and its nefarious regional ambitions. Yet some have wondered if he could have pursued this goal differently by avoiding a confrontational speech in the U.S. Congress in 2015, much to the lasting enmity of some Democrats. Others question when Netanyahu succeeded in thwarting Iran when, in fact, Tehran surged forward with its nuclear program after President Trump heeded Netanyahu's advice by pulling out of the 2015 nuclear deal. Another irony is that in the past, He was identified for support of the courts, yet he has turned into a vociferous critic of both the courts and law enforcement in recent years, as he's been embroiled in multiple criminal trials for bribery, fraud, and breach of trust charges. Now Netanyahu again enters the prime minister's office with a vastly different coalition than the past. Where he was once a right-of-center figure in past coalitions, he now heads an ultra-nationalist government with the likes of bitsalo Smotrich and Itamar Ben-Gvir. While skillful political organizing during the election allowed him to retake office, he now faces the challenge of restraining the very forces he has unleashed. How will the same figure that helped build Israel's economy and security to its current state prevent Israel from becoming an international pariah and isolating diaspora Jews with these hard-right figures in the cabinet and the controversial pledges featured in their coalition agreements. Today, I'm joined by two skilled and experienced journalists to try to understand the trajectory of Netanyahu's new government. David Horvitz is the founding editor of the Times of Israel and the former editor-in-chief of the Jerusalem Post. In 2014, he was awarded the B'nai B'rith World Center's Lifetime Achievement Award for journalism about the diaspora. Ben Kaspid is an accomplished columnist and Mariv Walla, and AL monitor, and the author of the fascinating biography, The Netanyahu Years. Together, David and Ben bring several decades of experience covering and writing about Binyamin Netanyahu. Welcome to David. A pleasure, David. And Ben. Thank you for having us. Welcome to Decision Points. So we've been each following Bibi Netanyahu, each of us, for at least three decades. So we want to somehow distill from what we know about how Bibi Netanyahu operates in his past terms as prime minister to understand how his new coalition will or will not govern in the time ahead. There's been a lot of international attention about the new government, and we're trying to get clues to understand how he will govern. It seems to me that his playbook during his previous terms was like to be a a proverbial pilot of an aircraft. He had a wing often to his right, a wing to his left, and that enabled him room to maneuver. Now he has only one wing. Some would say he's even the left wing of a very right wing government. However you want to term that, doesn't that limit his room to maneuver? How does he fly this plane? Ben, why don't I start with you?
1: It looks like this is a one wing plane because it cannot really fly to a long distance flight. And the reason that Netanyahu was very stubborn all of his career, he always promised a a right wing, full, what we we say in Hebrew, a full, full right wing government. And then after the election, he puts, he gets in our Tsipi Livni or Eud Barak or uh, Yair Lapid. He always, like you said, needed someone to his left, someone to restrain the, the lunatics on the right. Right now, it's a total, First time in history, it's the most right-wing, ultra-national uh, Israeli government, and Netanyahu is trying to play a double game. We, we just heard today of a delegation from the United States of senators led by a, a pro-Israel Senator Rosen from Nevada that refused to meet uh, two, two of the most important ministers in this government, Itamar Ben-Gvir and Smotrich, of course. And on the other hand, Netanyahu is talking about his primary goal, peace with Saudi Arabia. So how can you, in one hand, make peace with Saudi Arabia and on the other hand, not let the Jordanian ambassador today to go to the temple Mount and only after a crisis between the states, he went down and then went up again and was allowed to go in mosque So I think this task is bigger even to Netanyahu's skills, and he is a master. He was able to outmaneuver President Obama for eight years. Right now, it will be very difficult. And last sentence in this leg is that the reason that for the first time he established this government is simple. All of his career, the 15 years, his goal was to be a prime minister of everyone. He said it when he he spoke after his win. I will be everyone's prime minister. This is a, a, a slogan that everybody says. Right now, is he, cannot, he is not able to be a prime minister of everyone, only of his base, the 50% that uh, voted for him or his bloc, because the primary goal of him is not to be the guardian of Israel, like he always said, but to be the guardian of ben- Benjamin Netanyahu. He is under criminal charges. He can go to jail. And this is the only motivation right now, behind all of his actions. And this is the reason we sh- we see the, the D9s going to the Hill, to the Supreme Court, and all the Yariv Levine reforms. Yariv Levine is the presenter, but the leader, the real leader, the one that enables Levine to do it is Benjamin
0: Netanyahu. Okay, we're going to talk about Levine soon. But David, how do you see it? Is Does he plan to be the pilot, or does he want to be the co-pilot, or is he just flying business class on for the ride. How do you see this government different from all other governments?
2: Well, it is a government that's different from all other governments. It is the most hard line. It's uh, a government in which Likud itself has moved to the right, but it's still not as far right as the parties of Ben-Gvir and, and the aforementioned uh, Smotric, um, and some other factions and individuals even more extreme than that, and the ultra-Orthodox parties but let's not give the impression that this was somehow Netanyahu's choice this is the only coalition that Netanyahu could assemble because all those people you spoke about down the years who've been his left his left wing if you like or you know some would say the fig leaves for where he wanted to go they've all been alienated by him we even got to the stage the last government came into power not because the anti-Netanyahu center left had triumphed but because, briefly, the anti-Netanyahu right, left and centre had triumphed. The government before that, he was kept in power by Benny Gantz, who he did a deal with, and he then reneged on that deal and avoided transferring power to uh, Gantz. And therefore, over the years, you spoke about the, the many decades that we've all been writing about him and covering him, Over the decades, and especially the more recent years, he's basically alienated any other partners. And therefore, this was the only coalition he could build. And it does seem to be a different Netanyahu. Not in terms of his political mastery. I mean, what a campaign he ran. Ben referred to the 50-50, right? 50% of the public. So how is it that he's got 64 seats and the opposition's only got 56? Because he's just a better politician, and that's not necessarily a compliment, than the people who campaigned against him. He didn't let any votes go to waste among people who would possibly support him. And that included a few thousand votes from a a party led by an outspoken homophobe and extremist. Every last vote was scooped up for Netanyahu, whereas Yeri Lapid and Gantz on the other side, and especially Lapid, uh, allowed hundreds of thousands of votes to fall, to go to waste below the political threshold, the Knesset threshold that you have here. So Netanyahu ran a great campaign, and you think, well, what an excellent politician. But then since the election victory, his negotiations with his with his only partners were quite extraordinary. He negotiated as a supplicant, as though his party was not the biggest in parliament. Of course it is. It's double the size of any of his partners. And he negotiated with these ultra-Orthodox and far-right allies as though they had other options. Well, they don't. Now, he had no other options either. But still, this bizarre situation where a man like Itamar Ben-Gvir, who was beyond the pale, who Netanyahu described as not fit to serve in government less than three years ago, not only did he make him the police minister, he gave him unprecedented powers as police minister. A trick of religious Zionism, who he knows is a very difficult, implacable negotiator. Nonetheless, he's made him the finance minister, and he's, he's also the same man, is also a, a second minister in the defense ministry. Now, we've had junior ministers in the defence ministry before, but never one who was also the finance minister and therefore has incredible leverage. And he's given him powers, and I've never, ever seen this before, David, where the chief of staff of the army is publicly acknowledging having to manoeuvre to avoid capitulating to political deals. You know, Ben has control, in theory, over border police units in the West Bank. And the outgoing chief of staff said the other day, well... If he's going to change, if he's going to have real control over them and if there's a different conception with those forces, we won't deploy them. We'll use reservists and members of the standing army. I mean, these are extraordinary consequences of the outrageous, in some cases, appointments and coalition deals that he's done. He has imprisoned himself in a radical coalition while assuring the world that it's his hands on the wheel and giving every sign so far, I have to say, that he won't be able to rein these people in. Uh, and therefore you get you, you come ultimately to the one thing we've not mentioned, I'm sure we intend to, which is this uh, judicial, the, the polite word used by its advocates is reform, overhaul, shake up, also too polite, I think. And then the notion that Netanyahu is moving to basically neuter the high court with astounding consequences for Israel's democracy, in order to try to extricate himself from the uh, criminal trial that is ongoing against him. That's not a particularly good explanation, and maybe Ben is wiser than me on this, but that's the only explanation you can find for the the way he's acted. We're going to talk about that, but by the way, just to follow up,
0: David, for one second, when you said that this was the only coalition he could come to, do you think there needs to have been some sort of cheshbon nefesh, some sort of internal reckoning on the center-left that... You know that put that put him in that set, saying we, we're boycotting you until the end of your trial. Now we, we could say that was the right approach because he's on a trial, and that and, you know, and, and that should have been the case. But do you think that, in retrospect, that that needed to have been rethought, to have given other options, or do you think, look what he did to Gans? He promised the rotation and he reneged. There's no doubt about that. So, is there any? you know, Monday morning quarterbacking, as we would say in America
2: here, do you think about that maybe there should have been other options, David? Yeah, we're a very divided country, David, and it's not healthy, it's terrible. We're a tiny little country on the western edge of at least a partially hostile landmass. And if we don't have a degree of national unity and resilience, then we are vulnerable internally and most definitely externally as well. And everybody who cares about Israel has an interest in somehow narrowing some of the rifts between us. But at the same time, as you mentioned there, I mean, Gantz did bail him out a couple of elections ago. And all the other people, the Gidon Sars and the Avigda Liebermans and the Naftali bennetts these are people who opposed Netanyahu and who were part of that we're not going to sit with Netanyahu mindset because they had sat with Netanyahu. It's not as though they, they hadn't tried working with him. I certainly do think there should be Cheshbon Nefesh soul-searching on the anti-Netanyahu campaign front. They ran a lousy campaign. Really, they couldn't have done more. I suppose they could if they'd really tried, but they couldn't have done much more to ease his path to victory in a country where if you look at the actual votes cast, as opposed to the way it played out within our system, it was basically 50-50. You know, he did not need to win a 64-56 majority. And by the way, if it had been 50-50, there would have had to have been maybe some attempt at something more unifying and consensual than what we're left with now. Ben, I want to go ask you about him as a, the evolution of him as thinking.
0: You've written a book about him, you follow him daily. It seemed that the older version of BB tried to be right of center as you said, you know, representing everybody, but he kept the hard right at an arm's distance. He defended judicial independence he avoided commitments on religion and state, on even in terms of, you know, military intervention. He avoided any ground troops. He's was known for being risk averse in Washington. Netanyahu and risk averse is almost one name. But then something happened when I, mean, I talked to Bogey Alon, who was his defense minister. He said after the 2015 elections, he won and then he felt he was Caesar. <laughs> almost, that he stopped convening consultations around him on national security issues. Obviously, the corruption investigation was heating up around then. The role of his wife and his son exerting more influence was around then. Why, how did this person change? Can everything be reduced to this trial, or were there other factors that has shifted his thinking? Ben?
1: We are talking, I think, David, about a very long process. And I think if I have to uh, have a list The number one in the list of reasons that right now we see totally different, Benjamin Netanyahu. By the way, it's not the second one. The first one was Ben Nitai, when he was studying in the United States and started working in Boston Consulting and and was supposed to be an American billionaire. But then his brother was killed as a hero in Entebbe and he he had to pick up the torch and go and and fulfill the the family's role as, as a savior. But I think the number one reason, uh, his son, that joined his wife. And right now in the directorate of the family, Netanyahu is in a a minority uh, situation. And you can listen to the testimony of Nir Hefetz. It was uh, one of the most close confidants of this triumvirat telling the story of the magnometers in, in Temple Mount when Netanyahu, Israel put their magnometers and everyone, Shabak and everyone in the army said, listen, this can explode the whole Middle East. And his son did not let him take these magnometers away. It took many days until he was able to recover from his son's screams. And I don't want to go into these details, but right now he's not the master of, of his own home. And these are two very dominant people in the house. And wh- whoever follows uh, Netanyahu knows that the house is a slogan that we are using for 20 years now. You have to get credit or approval or, or the permission of the house. The second one is, of course, the trial. What we see here is vengeance. It's not only Netanyahu. Think about uh, Aryeh Deri that was convicted three times. Think about Dudiam Salem, one of the loudest voices uh, against the the judiciary that was arrested and almost charged in a corruption case in in Jerusalem a few years ago. I can name many other names that now are gathered around the Supreme Court and all the judiciary, like it's the Bastille in Paris. And Number four, I think talking about the Hebrews that uh, Netanyahu, I think, is suffering since the, the huge win in 2015. He came to believe that he is immortal. By the way, a, a year later, he saw Donald Trump is uh, saying, even if I walk down Fifth Avenue and shoot people, they will still vote for me. Right now, I think someone from Shas a few weeks ago said, I, no, I think it was Dudyam Salem, the Knesset member, the senior Knesset member from Likud, said that we are lucky that whatever we will do, they will still vote for us. This is the feeling in the Netanyahu neighborhood among the Likud, if you see the, the ultra-Orthodox, the Shas guys, and also the Ashkenazi uh, Orthodox, you see they, they don't fear the public anymore. You see in all the polls, even the, the Likud supporters are not are, are against uh, part of this reform and bringing Arya Deri back to the scene of the crime after three convictions— And no one cares about it. They really feel that they can do everything. They can get away with everything. And by the way, the results of the last election prove that they are maybe right. So the only thing that we see in front of us is chaos. The demonstration last Saturday was relatively big in a pouring rain. I don't know to tell you where we are going to. It's not a good place that we're going to.
0: David, maybe you could give us just a sense about Ben is saying how he has the almost unconditional support of his base. How is he able to keep his base so together for all these years? What is the secret sauce of
2: Benjamin Netanyahu? That's such a good question. And you'd think that I would have, you know, really good answers. And again, I defer to Ben who may may have points that I won't make here. Because it's not, it's some of it at least, is so illogical, right? This is a secular politician who is the beloved champion of ultra Orthodox and some modern Orthodox Israelis. This is a very Ashkenazi origin, as in, you know, European as opposed to Middle East North African, who, by the way, like Menachem Begin many, many, many years before him, and I'm not making any comparison became the champion of Sephardi Israelis, right? Middle Eastern, North African Israelis. He has shown a readiness to partner with the representatives of swathes of the population, but I don't think that there are other leaders who would have... I mean, there, you know, there, there was the case of Tzipi Livni not so many years ago who wasn't prepared to do some of the deals that the Shas, the Sephardi ultra-Orthodox party, wanted done and therefore gave up an opportunity, a fleeting opportunity to be prime minister. So maybe he's been more prepared to do things that some of the leaders wouldn't have done. He's incredibly articulate. He's incredibly astute. After a while, you're there in the States and you don't have the experience that we do, because there are term limits on a presidency. So as the father of three kids in their late 20s or so, You know, we had a a period here since 2009. I mean, he's been prime minister for three years in the 90s, but from 2009 for 12 years, and then just now uh, he's come back. The words prime minister in Israel was synonymous with Netanyahu. And at some point that becomes an incredible advantage. It's an advantage in terms of your experience, in terms of your capacity to utilize the levers of power. But it also, when you're appealing to the electorate, In again, I I say it, in a small country with lots of enemies, there's the the confidence and the security of, well, sticking with the devil you know. Now, for many people, he's not the devil at all. He's the hero that you know. But even for people who have some wariness and some disquiet, there's that as well. The simple longevity of his reign is an assurance. And anyone, by definition, who challenges that has an uphill battle. It's not coincidental that Gantz came close. What did Gantz have to his benefit? A former chief of staff, a recent former chief of staff. And maybe that's the last point that I'll make here. And you mentioned it already, Mr. Security and so on, and not a military adventurer and so on. When Israelis vote, I mean, we have mandatory military service here. We have to send our kids to the army if we're not ultra-orthodox, broadly speaking. And when, when Israelis go to vote, in the run-up, they, everyone talks about socioeconomic issues and those are important. But to some great degree, and I think really an overwhelming degree when people vote, certainly when lots of people vote, they're thinking, who of these candidates is going to keep not us safe, but our kids safe in the army? Who's going to try to avoid conflict? And that, I think, has has also been a huge factor in his success.
0: Yeah, Ben, I want to hear what you think, because this question of the secret sauce in America, between the novel and the new and the experience, often they go for the novel. And maybe it's part of commercial culture in America. But is it like david said it's his experience is it because he is the stone that a lot of his voters throw at the elite that he's seen as a, a, a point of defiance so is he is it that his he's got more experience or he he speaks a language about jewish destiny it, or is it that he's like i said is it risk averse or is it that he's also Mr. Defiance. The more the elite in the media and the judiciary are against him, the more they back him. I'm trying to understand his hold on his base. Ben, what do you think? First of all, we have to say
1: that he's very, very talented. He's the most charismatic politician in Israel's history, and I, I think he's he can he is in the top five of the of the international uh, political scene in our days. Uh, like his wife said some uh, once, uh, if he was born in the United States, he would have be, be, become the president of the United States. And after we saw uh, Donald Trump, we, are, we have to agree. He's very, very talented. I think he's the most talented prime minister we ever had. More than Ben Gurion, more than Rabin, more than everyone. Maybe not more from Ehud Barak, if we'll measure the high But Ehud Barak was not able to use it as a political tool. Netanyahu, I saw him lecturing in an Arab village many years ago. He was hypnotizing the the, the Arabs that listened to him. Now, a few more things. We, we all remember Nathan Eshel, maybe the most closest confidant of the family. He was recorded once saying. It's hard to translate it, especially with my English, but something like, the non-Ashkenazic public, they hate everything. This is what unites our camp. And then he said many things about how they use this hatred that the non-Ashkenazic Israeli population, you know, after all the history when the Jews from North Africa came and they were sent to all these distant Villages, etc., etc., and Netanyahu is not one of them. He is a multimillionaire from Jerusalem, uh, Ashkenazi, etc. But be, but he's, he's he's able in his skills in his unbelievable skills to put them on uh, on his wagon. The, I think this is uh, the secret. And another thing, when when I talk to the Orthodox, I, I ask him, listen, he's not even uh, putting the tefillin. They beg him for years and he refused. And he is the leader of this camp. Even Aaron Barak, the Supreme Court ex-president, which they hate so much. He was photographed doing this on Saturday when he, he was interviewed to an Orthodox newspaper. So they look at him and, and they see him as a, one of them because he's persecuted. He's uh, so always in in an uphill battle, although he's... Uh, he's the leader and the the, the immortal leader, but leader, but he's the symbol of oppression of the the old elite in Israel and persecuted people, and and he's the leader. He's able to be in simultaneously the prime minister and the opposition leader. They all yell about things that that happen here, and and when, but you know the judiciary system, etc. You tell them, listen, but you are forty years in power. You're yelling at yourself. You are yelling about the Arabs in in Gaza, who lost the confidence of uh, Israeli city, uh, population in Gaza. This okay. it's Netanyahu. So that now they are bringing back to fix the same guy that broke it. So this is all because he's very skilled. He's one of the greatest orators that, that I think that that are right now in in in, his, in the international uh, political arena, and we see a very 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 skilled. Machine. By the way, last thing is the greatest actor, and he's not a, a Hollywood actor. He's a Shakespearean actor. He can get into into a, a what he wants to, to 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 act right now, and he's convinced that everything is. Uh, yesterday, when when the chief of staff was was switched, he told stories after later that when you check, not not true. Stories, you know, legends, urbanic legends, but he is so convincing that it works for him. It's as simple as that.
0: It's amazing someone who's been around for so long in power yet is able to distance himself from the political establishment that he is headed. I remember Begin in 81. He had been prime minister for four years, and yet at his rallies, people yelled, Begin le Begin to power. But he's been in power. And Bibi's been much longer than Begin is the longest serving prime minister. So let's just go back now to the here and now for a moment. Some say, look, part of Netanyahu, and some of you have talked to him about how how he's been so persuasive as a leader in terms of talking to the public. Others of you have talked about his what a great tactician he is, uh, You know, squeezing out every last vote so no votes are lost in the elections as a tactician. But some would say, look, Netanyahu, he had to put this government together because he had no other choice. But ultimately, he's counting on other factors to constrain the very system that he's designed and to hold them back. There was a phrase in Hebrew, chishukim, you know, constraints. And some say he's counting on Biden. You know, he'll be going to the White House, it looks like, uh, in the next few weeks. He's counting on the Abraham Accord countries that they will also make sure that there's no change in the status quo. I mean, as you, as Ben, you said about uh, Saudi Arabia, he knows that he can't change the status quo in the Temple Mount and have peace with the Saudis or with the Emiratis. I mean, the, his trip was canceled with the stroll for 13 minutes of Ben Gvir up there. He's counting on the security services that will tell him uh, what cannot be done. So in a certain way, he feels he's got built-in constraints, why he cannot fulfill promises to his coalition partners. Now, David, over to you. I mean, could he outsmart himself here? I mean, the the people he's dealing with are, are very ideological. Uh, Smotrich, for example, you know, he was willing to sit in the opposition rather than have Mansour Abbas as part of the coalition. And Bibi would have been prime minister in June of 2021. So I'm just trying to figure out about what breaks he's trying to p- put in the system and how persuasive those breaks are going to be with some of these coalition partners like Smutrich and Ben Greer, who believe this is their moment in the sun and they don't want to waste this moment and they want to push for the maximum. So,
2: David, how are these counterweights? How do you see them? Look, you know, you're giving such a logical context here and you're trying to, to look for the familiar themes and so on. And basically what you're doing is you're setting up Netanyahu as the only person who can constrain the forces that he's unleashed. But at some point you have to acknowledge that he unleashed them, right? And then you start to ask yourselves, why do we keep asking ourselves when and how they're going to be constrained and how he's planning to do that? He's done it. You know, Ben Gvir was not a mainstream political force until Netanyahu legitimized him. And as I said before, even forces even more extreme than him. And then having, you know, until the coalition agreements were done and until the government was sworn in, you know, when it was running for an election, those kinds of questions, I think, had to be asked. What does he think he's doing here? He's bringing Benver into the mainstream. He's bringing Avi Mars into the mainstream. We know he has no other allies. Okay, he's just making, you know, doing a very effective campaign. And they did rather better, one suspects, than he thought they would do. And Likud did rather worse at their expense. But okay, now the votes are in. Now the 64 seats are there. Why then, if he's looking for salvation from the Biden administration or elsewhere, did he give them such extraordinary power? Why, words fail, did he make Avima Oz a one-person faction who he could live without, a deputy minister and give him ostensible control over aspects of Israeli children's education. Why did he, I mean, Ben gvir crazy enough that he put a guy, a multiple convicted recidivist for incitement to racism and other crimes, why would he put him in charge of the police? But not even that was enough, in charge of the police with additional powers. Why when he knows that Smotrich is indeed a, a pretty stubborn and ideologically implacable Foe of some of the values that we think that Netanyahu has stood for over the years, did he not merely make him the finance minister, but also give him all these powers in the defence ministry, including ostensible control over basically the mechanisms that run the West Bank. And the end of that is, why did he do all that if ultimately he's looking to be saved from these people that he's empowered? You know, it doesn't make sense to me. And therefore, at some point, you have to conclude. At some point, you have to say... Plainly, this is what he wants. Now, does he want to set Israel on a collision course with the United States? Presumably not, because he's deeply concerned about the threat of Iran. Does he want to spark avoidable conflict with the Palestinians? His track record would say that, of course, he doesn't want to do that. That's not what he's done in the past. But again, you are left, to my mind, wanting an answer. He is the person who unleashed this tiger. He is the person who set these processes in motion. You know, does he want to alienate all of diaspora Jewry? Well, then why in his coalition agreements does he make references to changing the law of return? Right. Does he want Israel to be perceived as a, as a racist country? Well, of course he doesn't. Well, then why in his coalition agreements with two of the parties are there proposals for legislation that would, quote unquote, legitimize discrimination? So I don't have an answer to your question, and I'm not sure that, that we should be asking that question. It doesn't even make sense to me to ask it.
0: Very well said and fair. Over to you, Ben. If you also want to respond to that, fine. I also want you to get me a sense of that Bibi does have a sense sometimes of public opinion. We joke that he eats polling data for breakfast. He doesn't want to talk about it because to talk about it is to say that he's not leading. But if there are is a strong outcry of the public that says with these reforms, so-called reforms, but it's you could say it's gutting the judiciary. And turning Israel into Hungary or Poland, can you see Netanyahu retreating from Levine's ideas? Because it's clearly Levine is only there because Bibi put him there. And as David said, well, you know, he's unleashed this. So Levine has once said he wouldn't be justice minister because he didn't think he had the backing. Now he thinks he has the backing. You know, Israel's independent judiciary has been the hallmark of Israel for the last 75 years. So how sensitive is Netanyahu to public opinion when it comes to super controversial uh, proposals like that's being put forward?
1: First, I will comment briefly after what David had said and and, and well said, like you said, uh, David. I don't think Netanyahu has a plan. I don't think Netanyahu is something very well uh, planned with the stages and the fallback positions. He's playing from uh, a day-to-day on a daily basis is the only thing he wants is this a reform? They call it a reform. This is actually a coup because he wants to get rid of the criminal charges. That's it. And on the other hand, he wants to survive the, the security and the international scene. And yes, he hopes that the Americans and the Egyptians and the Emirates that Israelis love very much to fly to Abu Dhabi and Bahrain and all these countries that will help him. Convincing his lunatics, Ben and Smotrich, that as we said in we say in Israel, things you see from here you did not see from there. When you come to power, you are aware of the fact that you cannot fulfill all, all your ideology, etc. And he he hopes that he will be able to maneuver in this very very problematic scene. The very big question, and 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 like David said, we cannot know. I don't think he knows the question is can he retreat like you just asked and can he offer guns give guns an offer that he cannot refuse or lapid or both and in this question i think we are trapped in a in a dead end and in a catch-22 situation because the political graveyard in israel is full with people that made deals with netanyahu actually no one survived the deal in, with Netanyahu. No one. Not from his camp, his bloc, the other bloc. Everyone that got into a Netanyahu government or or a deal, some kind of a deal with Netanyahu, was killed. And the last one that did it is uh, Benny Gantz. He, he fell from 35 mandates. He was saved by the bell with the, in a miracle with eight, eight mandates after he, he was trying to save the country. And people like myself, did not like this deal but we all said listen there is no choice so right now i know that for example in the Gum gun's camp there are people that will support a fair deal from netanyahu something like where well, i'm not touching the judicial system i'm not touching the supreme court my trial is go- going on but i'm staying a prime minister and join me benny guns go back to become a defense minister I know Lapid is more extreme. Lapid became a prime minister because he insisted not to go in with guns. But the situation right now is different. We are facing a revolution, and I'm not sure it's reversible. But Netanyahu cannot call them, cannot uh, have his live speech, and they, not, they, from their side, cannot approach Netanyahu. The last one that approached Netanyahu secretly was Bougie Herzog, after the 2015 campaign, he was negotiating with Netanyahu for one and a half years. The agreement was, was prepared, ready for signing. On the last second, Netanyahu leaked it to the press all the time. On the last second, Netanyahu had a U-turn and signed with Avigdor Lieberman. And Bougie, poor Bougie Herzog, right now the president, fell from 24 mandates to zero. So this is a catch-22 situation. Many people want to have this deal. Even in Netanyahu's side, but it's politically it's impossible, and it's a tragedy.
0: So if you had to say now, you know, I think we're all saying something, that his foreign policy and his domestic politics are on a collision course with each other, that he wants a breakthrough with Saudi Arabia. He wants to maintain the UAE peace, which we all agree is very popular in Israel. This is one of the wealthiest Arab countries. There's been 500,000 Israelis that have gone as tourists in a country at a time basically of a pandemic, which tells you that the potential here is incredible. And on one hand, he needs America to help him with the Saudis because the Saudis have made clear that the things they want are all American, you know, in upgrading the relationship and getting weapons uh, flow, and uh, trying to get some civilian nuclear energy with the enrichment cycle that they want to keep. It's not clear that Israel wants the Saudis to have all these things. But Bibi's MO is often, I can help you, but you have to help me help you. I'll help you in America, but you have to help me too. And we know it's not going to be the Abraham Accords tomorrow morning. This is going to take time, but we could start down this road. So he's going to need the United States on Saudi Arabia. On the Iranian issue, which, you know, we can have a whole debate. If Does he have it within him? If he, if he needed to attack Iran, this is a parlor game in Israel. Is it, as they say in Hebrew, gadol alav"? Is it too big for him? But he clearly needs the United States here. How does he avoid this collision course between feeling, I need America on the foreign policy things, but I let have the other guys do what they want uh, domestically? How does he keep this
2: balancing act. David, over to you. Yeah, I don't think there's a distinction that can be made. Again, I want to reframe the question and forgive me, because I think that much of his foreign policy and much of his domestic policy are on a collision course with many of Israel's best interests. I don't think the, the collision is quite the way you describe it. Right. So let's, you know, talk about an ostensibly domestic policy about basically denying the High Court of most of its powers. Um, That's not just a domestic issue, and we've tried to explain why we think he might be doing it. That has tremendous international implications, including for Israel's relations with the United States. The UN and other international bodies have been thwarted or held back many times over the years in traducing, denouncing and potentially worse Israel over its policies regarding the Palestinians, among other issues, because of the undeniable fact that Israel had an independent, potent high court that was credibly able to examine alleged abuses and alleged undemocratic or illegitimate policies and so on. We had a separation of powers and there was a break on executive excess and abuse if the quote-unquote reform package goes through in anything like the format that it exists, it basically denies the judiciary its capacity to function. And it's not just me saying that, it's you know, the people from within the system as an independent and efficient and effective and empowered separate branch of government. The international implications of that are, are terrible. And they're also very problematic for Israel's relationship with the United States. Israel becomes less democratic, and I'm being polite here, And we all look, you know, you're speaking to us from thousands of miles away and we, our countries, the pillars of the relationship have included the assumption that we have shared values, insistence on on freedom. It's an intimate relationship born of the things we have in common. What Netanyahu is doing threatens to change core aspects of, of what Israel stands for. Now, we haven't had much time and there's only limited time in this, but I just want to take a a moment as well to to talk about, and it does have international implications as well, David. When you are in your agreements giving tremendous, not just power, but financial support to ultra-Orthodox parties, including a non-state, not improperly supervised, likely to grow even more massively, education system in which the core curriculum is not taught When you have a community that is already the fastest growing community in this country, you're going to have it growing faster. You look at the numbers about the the growth in the ultra-orthodox community and don't ignore the Arab community either. You're basically gradually getting to the situation where first a quarter and then a third, then half this country, this first world country, is, is getting a third world education. So you're going to have a growing huge part of our populace who are, not educated to the standards that by the way I'm convinced if they had the choice they would want to be educated you're going to have an incredibly disproportionate burden with other people paying higher taxes with people serving in the army and other people not sharing the burden are they going to willing are they going to be willing to stay here and therefore some of the domestic changes that Netanyahu has agreed to have tremendous potential consequences for Israel's most vital fundamental sustainability, its capacity to function here effectively and to survive here effectively. Now, that's an American concern, because America is our allies. But I don't think you can set it up as he's doing all this stuff domestically, and yet on the foreign policy front he's trying to do... Well, it's not quite like that. He's doing all this stuff domestically with massive foreign and international implications, again, going to the foundational sustainability of this country. Well said again,
0: David. Once I start talking about the core curriculum, I can't stop. So maybe I, I will avoid getting into it. But it just seems to me you're condemning a whole new generation of uh, Israelis to poverty, the next generation. And uh, it's going to have implications on Israel being a first world country. There's no question. So I'm very happy you said what you said. Ben, I want to move over to you uh, to pick up on what David just said. You know, in Israel, sometimes there's a saying I call it intresim. Everything is interest. But in the U.S.-Israel relationship, going back to Harry Truman and John F. Kennedy and Ronald Reagan and many others, what brought these countries together was not the computer chips, was not the high-tech industry, it was common values. And certainly for the Israel-Diaspora relationship, it's both, you know, yes, there's common interests that might link governments, but it's common values that link societies, and I'm trying to understand if you feel that many Israelis understand that, that if something, if it's the judicial changes that and the independence of the judiciary as just one example, that these are things that are going to really cut away at this idea of common values. And do you think Israelis care? about that in terms of their relationship with the United States, with diaspora Jews. We always hear, well, they're, they're busy, there's terrorism, there's Hamas, there's Hezbollah, there's Iran, etc. But this idea that David mentioned of common values, I think really cuts at the heart of the relationship. And I just, we often in Washington wonder how much do the Israelis, the people, really think this is foundational in the way that David said. All right, so Ben.
1: I'll try to uh, to make it brief first uh, about what David said about, about generally the relationship with the United States. You remember the big headline in the Yediotachonot when Netanyahu flew to Washington first time after he won in 2009. The headline was Boucher for Itar. You helped me in it's in a separate settlement with the settlements, uh, Judea and Samaria, the territories, and I will help you in Boucher. It did not succeed. Right now, I think the survival plan of Netanyahu vis-à-vis Washington is leaving Ambassador Herzog that speaks the American democratic language, nominating Tzachia Negbi to National Security Advisor, experienced, relatively respected, pragmatic, and nominating Ron Dermer, to a special minister. He will be the real foreign minister. He is an American. He knows the House. He knows everything. It will be easier for him. Then root and pray for a Republican win in the next presidential election. So he actually tells himself, I have only one year to survive. Within one year, America is going into a campaign. No one will care about me with this china thing and the ukraine russia so i it will be so it's it looks possible to netanyahu We did say things with, with obama in the past then the, the last thing is praying for luck he's a very lucky politician he always prayed for a miracle to save him on, uh, on the last moment and from time to, to time uh, it really happened about your question it depends which israelis I anchor a daily radio show with a colleague that is a, you know, Magalu is a very known Netanyahu supporter. And you have to listen to the way they talk about reformed Jews. They're not Jews. Netanyahu himself was talking with the Israeli diplomats in North America many times, and he actually wrote down the American Jewry. Yes, they are there. And I'm quoting quoting him now, but, you know, the, the mixed marriage and all this, it's a plateau. Within a few years, they will just disappear. And he's putting all his coins on the Christians, the evangelical vote, the, the tens of millions of, of uh, Christians that root for Israel without any connection to Jews or not Jews. And, and this is Tragic. They ignore the reforms. They ignore the conservatives. I'm telling them, listen, I'm secular. The reformed Jews are are a lot more religious than me. So why do you think I am a Jewish like you in Israel? And they are not. And they ignore the thing that that the greatest supporters of Israel and donors, etc. Today, Netanyahu met uh, the the chairman of APEC in Jerusalem. And you have to to read the the statement. Yes, very optimistic, etc. But under the surface, It's an earthquake, and and I'm very pessimistic about the future of it. Look at the coalition. Look at Avi Maoz, Look at what they say about our brothers on the other side of the ocean. And I don't see anything optimistic that
0: I can uh, tell you about it, David. My last question to both of you is, you know, on one hand, Netanyahu prides himself on being strategic, you know, in in terms of the Middle East, when it's Iran, whether— Saudi Arabia, whatever the issues are opening to the Gulf, but on the Palestinian issue, he always seems very tactical, you know, that, and to many Americans, they say, but doesn't he realize the danger of a de facto one state reality? And if Israel becomes a one state reality, where does Israel go? And you who've sat with Netanyahu for 30 years, and I mean, not he doesn't always sit with you guys. I I realize that. And it is amazing as an American to know that this is a guy that doesn't hold wide-ranging interviews with the Israeli press. But still, you talk to people around him. And this disconnect between a guy who sees himself as strategic versus someone who's more tactical. David, how do you see that, that he's not able to articulate where does this go?
2: Look, you're speaking to someone who feels very strongly that Israel's long-term future certainly depends on keeping the door open, at least in theory, to a two-state solution. I'm not somebody who thinks that Israel should withdraw to the 1967 lines tomorrow. I am someone who's looked uh, over recent decades and Israel left Lebanon and bad people took over and Israel left Gaza and bad people took over. You know, we've been told that withdrawing from territory invites bad people to take over. And if we withdrew from significant parts of the West Bank, You know, the airport would be closed and our country would be paralyzed. On the other hand, that was the basis on which this country was founded. And it's the basis on which, if we are to sustain this miracle, which is of an Israel as a Jewish and a democratic state, that I don't know any other way to achieve that, right? What I think we saw in these elections, first of all, it was a triumph of Jewish Israel over democratic Israel. Not a knockout, but a triumph. And the consequences for democratic israel we've we've touched upon and they are profound including but not limited to this uh, this judicial overhaul but also the judaism that is represented by ben gvir and smotrich is not what i consider to be authentic judaism it is a kind of supremacist judaism it's regarding jews as the chosen people in the supremacist sense of that word not that we were blessed and privileged with an ethos and a code of conduct and behavior that we are obligated to try and bring and sustain to humanity. Now, I don't know what to make of Netanyahu in that context. He's such a smart person. He's so spectacularly well-read. He understands long-term trends. I can't get my head around it. And the only example I can give you for how outrageous it is does not relate to your question, so I apologize. But just a few weeks ago, he gave an interview in English because, as you rightly say, he doesn't give many interviews in Israel to people who would ask him awkward questions. He was talking to, giving an interview, and he was talking about how he, in a previous prime ministership, had saved the Israeli economy, including by changing the way benefits were being allocated to the ultra-Orthodox community. And therefore, he incentivized people to join the workforce. And he, he, he saved the economy. It was, it was true what he said. What was amazing about it was it, is, it was as though... There was some other guy who's now prime minister of Israel who's doing the opposite, right? Who's going to destroy the Israeli economy that he saved, who's going to revive all those disincentives for people to join the workforce, et cetera, et cetera. It's an example of this disconnect between what I think Netanyahu knows in his heart and in his head is good for Israel and what he seems to be doing. I cannot understand it. I cannot believe that this is what Netanyahu wants his legacy to be a legacy that empowers the BDS movement, that reduces Israel to pariah status internationally, that risks conflict with the Palestinians, that potentially destroys the Israeli economy, that alienates diaspora Jews, that prompts people who love this country to wonder whether this is the right place to raise their children. I cannot bridge that disconnect.
0: Ben, I give you the last word here. How is someone who prides himself on being so strategic acting so tactical, especially on the chances of a one-state reality and, and maybe even shutting the door to two states if certain policies like legalization of dozens and dozens of outposts go forward. How do you explain the disconnect between the strategist and the tactician?
1: And he is a son of a, an historian. And this is even even right. more outrageous than what just uh, David just said, right. And and I agree totally to what David said, even about uh, Judaism, etc. But I think he used to think about himself as a strategic leader, but now he's he's less than tactical. I think you know even better than both of us, David, how long was he able to go through towards the Palestinians when he negotiated with them in 2014? You know the draft that he he agreed not to sign. He never signs everything, but to agree verbally keeping a leverage that it can be deniable later, but he counts on the other side. His only strategy is to go on weakening the PA, the Palestinian Authority in the uh, West Bank, and even uh, working with Hamas. Hamas is his biggest and most important strategic ally because his tactics is, uh, as long as they are separated, we don't have to deal with them. And I think in the base of all this is belief that uh, the time works for Israel. Uh, I think is, uh, in a in a minority here because uh, when you count the people between the river and the sea, you see that demographically speaking, Time does not work for Israel, but he, he believes that time is working for Israel. You have to manage it. You have to gain time and more time and more time. And later, Yebe said that, as we say in Hebrew, let's count on God or someone. And uh, the real thing with Bibi is that right now, and I think I, I started writing it a few years ago, he does not think about the state. He thinks about himself. From all the prime ministers that I covered the only one that will have to if he have has to choose between two decisions one is good uh, for Israel and one is good for Benjamin Netanyahu, he will choose the next the second one, but not in order to harm Israel because he really believes it's it's a messianic approach that he is essential to our uh, existence here without Israel like his wife said recorded without Bibi
0: Israel is doomed. So right now, we're going to be doomed with Bibi, It's interesting that his, you know, his father, you know, in talking about the medieval Jews at the time of the Spanish Inquisition, felt that they were not well positioned. They didn't understand the art of self-preservation, and therefore, they faced tragedy after tragedy. If you think that you are the state, then maybe everything is allowed. Because if you survive, the state survives. You know, it's increasingly, I think, if you think about what his dad said about medieval Jews, that he's come to really internalize that about himself, and that self-preservation and and Israel's self-preservation are intertwined. So look, I want to thank you both for your time, for your insight, for this wonderful discussion about really a leader that often... You know, surprises everyone and is now beginning a new government. I don't think we we have made all the answers, but I think we've identified many of the questions and I just hope our listeners stay tuned as this government unfolds and might be put the trade tables in the upright positions, fasten your seatbelts. There could be some turbulence ahead, but we shall see. But anyway, Ben Kaspit and David Horowitz, I wanna thank you both very, very much for joining us on Decision Points.
1: Thank you very much for having us, David. Thanks, David.
0: Thank you, thank you. I just had a conversation. We are three BB watchers, two guests and myself. Each has been following Netanyahu for at least three decades. What comes across is that there's a worry that Israel's very character could be imperiled as a liberal democracy, charting a very different trajectory for Israel's future. It's so concerning, since Netanyahu fashions himself as a strategist, but the strategy for this coalition with the hard right is not apparent unless it is about self-preservation. It's concerning that all this has occurred just as Israel is about to turn 75 in the spring of 2023. Israel's people have been defined by their resilience, overcoming wars and terror throughout the decades to build a thriving economy and democracy, despite it being in an area of high stress and despite an unfinished challenge of the Palestinian issue. Yet another sign of Israel's success is the resilience of its civic institutions of all stripes, vibrant and independent. It would be the best gift for Israel's 75th birthday, If these same institutions overcame the challenges ahead and provided hope and direction for the next 75 years of Israel's future. Thank you all for listening to another season of Decision Points. Stay on the journey with us. I want to thank all of our listeners from all over the world. I hope you listened to all of season four and to all previous seasons. You can find Decision Points on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts, as well as on the Washington Institute website. Download and subscribe to never miss an episode. While you're there, please leave us a review and rating, and tell your friends. I want to thank all those who made this podcast possible. Our coordinators, Gabriel Epstein, David Patkin, and Jonah Schrock, and our researchers, Valeria De La Fuente and Stuart Harris. I also want to thank Jeff Rubin, Scott Rogers, Carolina Krauskopf, and Maria Rodacci of the Washington Institute. And finally, Adrian Bain, our producer, and Richard Myron from Earshot Strategies. Thank you all.